when I said dorky, I actually meant great. Great, dorky. <laughs> I love dorky. Come on. Okay, fair oh, enough. Hilarious. Okay. Well, you're editing this piece out, right? <laughs> No, this, no this is, this, Molly's actually thinking this is the intro to the episode. <laughs> Hello, Compact Nation. Uh, I'm Marisol Morales. I'm the Vice President for Network Leadership at Campus Compact. With me, I have our uh, uh, Director of our Iowa Campus Compact, the wonderful Emily Shields, and our fearless leader, uh, Andrew Seligson, President of Campus Compact. How are you guys doing today? Hi, good. Don't forget my temporary other title as Acting Director of Minnesota Campus Compact, too. I get to drive north a lot right now. That's right. A lot of traveling. Yeah. I thought you were going to be like, and don't forget my superhero title, and we were going to learn something. I have my unicorn name from last year. You have a unicorn name? Mm -hmm. Do explain. Mm Mm-hmm. We had um, Vule from the Nonprofit AF blog on, and he talked a lot about how nonprofit staff members are, are unicorns, you know, like the special creatures kind of thing. But then he put out this whole thing. It's like how to figure out your unicorn name based on, I think it's like the initials of your first name and last name and the year. Or it's the, like one like of those Facebook and, quizzes. It's like one of those things. Okay. Yeah. I get it. I can awesome. send it to you and you can figure it out. But yeah, um, I want to give you your nonprofit unicorn name and title as well. So we did do that for one of the podcasts in the past. Very cool. I'll have to go back and check and then do my unicorn name. <laughs> did Andrew get a unicorn name? Yes. He doesn't and remember. It, I can tell by the look on his face. Yeah, the, the, I thought I was going to be saved by the fact that podcasting is an audio medium, but <laughs> you guys can see me. And yeah, I, I have no memory. I was actually trying to remember my, uh, I remember at some point getting the internet to tell me my Brazilian soccer player name, but I don't remember that either. So I have to, I'm going to find that generator though. Well, on to more serious things. Um, So we're really excited to have um, our interview with uh, Mari Castaneda and Joseph Kripchinski from UMass Amherst. And we'll be talking a little bit about that. Uh, But I also want to give a shout out since uh, this is still Hispanic Heritage Month and um, the recognition of our diverse Latinx communities uh, across the country uh, and really being able to take this opportunity and honor um, the work that uh, came out of this book that was edited by Marika Seneda and Joseph Kripchinski, um, highlighting uh, the different kind of community engagement work, especially that our Latinx scholars are doing. So in honor of that, we've got our interview with them. Uh, If you don't know, now you know, uh, Mari Castaneda (laughs) is a professor and chair of communications at UMass Amherst. Her research interests uh, are in digital media and telecommunication policy, Latino, uh, Latina ethnic and media studies and global communication. And her work promotes engaged scholarship and aims to address inequality, power, community voices, and the role of intersectionality in shaping media and cultural spaces. Um, Also, Joseph Kropchinski is the director of the Office of Civic Engagement and Service Learning uh, and is also an associate professor in the Department of Architecture at uh, UMass Amherst. Joseph's creative work and scholarships promote uh, imaginative community partnership and crafts participatory platforms to engage people in the creation of their built environments, especially in collaboration with underrepresented communities. So I was really excited to be able to interview them about their book and happy that it came out, especially contributing to um, both diverse scholars in this field, uh, but also bringing forth voices um, that we typically don't hear of in this field. I met them probably about four years ago uh, when I was working at the University of Laverne, um, and they were in California, in Southern California, visiting. Uh, I was doing some work with MICVA Challenge, which which is a youth civic engagement organization based here in Chicago, and their uh, national organization, Action Civics, um, 
the local one in LA, Action Civics LA, and uh, through mutual friends, got to meet them and just connected with them automatically, given our shared uh, work in the field and our commitments to community and social justice. And so uh, being able to uh, come back in this role that I have and interview them and learn about uh, what they've been doing and the work that they've been doing to also promote diverse voices in the field uh, was really exciting. I'm glad that we get to share it with you on the podcast and that my colleagues here at Compact have also been able to uh, listen uh, and learn and uh, contribute to the dialogue that we're going to have today. And I'm just going to give one program note before we roll into the interview. Uh, so Madi and Joseph mentioned uh, a few times the five colleges. I think that's how they talk about it. People talk about the five college area also. So just for those of you who are not um, collectors of tidbits about Massachusetts higher education, uh, the five colleges refers to five institutions that happen to be located very close together in the Pioneer Valley in Western Massachusetts, UMass Amherst. Amherst College, Smith College, Mount Holyoke College, and Hampshire College. And uh, they have a, a consortium and do a lot of things together. And it's great in many ways because it's a very activated education space with these diverse institutions cooperating. So I just wanted to let people know that uh, so they are not thrown off when there are mentions of that during the interview. All right, so now we will hear the interview and we'll be back to talk about it on the other side. Welcome to our Compact Nation podcast. Really excited to have as our guests, Marita Steneda and Joseph Kropchinski from UMass Amherst and talking about their book, Civic Engagement in Diverse Latinx Communities. Uh, welcome both of you to our podcast. Thank you, Marisa, for inviting us. Yeah. I'm so happy to be here. Awesome. So let's just get started. I've got a few questions for you all about how you got involved in this work uh, of civic and community engagement in higher ed, what brought you to this work, um, and then move into the book and the recent symposium you all had. Excellent. So if you can tell us, how did you get involved in civic and community engagement? What brought you to this work um, and what you do with students? Um, so I'll go first. Um, I think one of the things that influenced me was my actual graduate study. When I was at UC San Diego, we were actually very involved with a um, storytelling uh, project that was really trying to capture stories along the border, the U.S.-Mexico border in San Diego. And, um, and I could see that the power of those relationships between university professors, students, and, and community partners was really trying to give voice to communities that oftentimes were silenced uh, or didn't necessarily have spaces within academic university um, environments to be able to talk about their experiences. And so having had that background and coming here to UMass Amherst as a new professor, I got invited uh, immediately to a five-college um, uh, initiative that was bringing faculty and community partners and students to talk about how do we do this with a social justice orientation? How do we do this with a form of reciprocity and respect? Um, and how do we do it in a way and within our classes um, so that the universities can recognize the work that we're doing, you know, in working with community partners? And also, how do we document that work itself? Mm -hmm. um, so early on, as a, new, as a new assistant professor, I was pulled into these conversations that for me have been central and foundational for the work that I've continued to do since I've been here now 18 years. Um, and so I would say that that's sort of the way that I got involved. And for me also coming from Los Angeles, you know, from Southern California to Western Massachusetts, not having community here in sense of not having necessarily no, um, you know, no ha having no family and then not necessarily knowing a lot of people that um, was really wonderful for me because I got to get plugged into the work that faculty and community partners were already doing that really spoke to my values and the way that I wanted to enter into academic spaces and think about my future career in combining these issues of of um, social justice in the classroom, in community, and really recognizing the knowledge production that's happening, you know, in these partnerships that, that take place. And did you encounter resistance as an assistant professor doing this work in terms of tenure and promotion, expectations around research and publishing? That's a great question. I think actually I was very lucky to be in a department that was already seen as an engaged department, both by the National Communication Association, which is our national office. And they were actually already very involved with, um, you know, in terms of community partnerships around um, 
in, from the area. And so the faculty that pulled me in were actually faculty from my department. Um, but there was pushback in the sense that there was still an emphasis, of course, of publishing and research and didn't really see always the connection between the two mm-hmm. and seeing it as something separate. And so my goal was really trying to figure out how do I really create the work that I'm doing with community partners in a way that could be published, but also um, that respected the community voices that I was engaging with. So it wasn't about me coming in, extracting, and then getting what I wanted, but really working closely with those community partners to write the, the story of our partnership in a way that, um, that respected their positionality and the way in which they were entering, but also that, um, that could pass the muster of the rigor that's required for journals and so forth. And I did write about, um, a particular set of partnerships uh, in the um, Latino Studies Journal, and a very small, short piece that actually a lot of people have really liked and enjoyed because I talked about both the opportunities and the challenges of doing this, particularly at a predominantly white institution working with Latinx communities. Um, and I wanted to really document that so that maybe I could share my experiences with others, but also it was peer reviewed. And so the questions that came back from the reviewers were really helpful for me to continue to really be clear about what I was saying and how I was saying it um, so that it could be also published you know, by the journal, but also seen as making an intellectual contribution to the conversations that were taking place. Um, that in fact, Latino studies, Chicano studies, ethnic studies in the US have very always been community driven. Mm-hmm. You know, It's something that actually came out of community movement and right. social movements and so forth. Um, but now I was in a communication department, which is where I got my PhD, but that I was also trying to combine these two fields of study uh, and influence each other in some ways. Um, and so that was part of what I was trying to do is to bring in that history of Latinx, you know, Chicano studies, ethnic studies into the communication field through these community engaged partnerships and civic engagement work that I was trying to do. Absolutely. Thank you. And Joseph, how did you get involved? So I guess there's always, um, as uh, typical, there's lots of different stories to tell in, in about my involvement. I was in, and I'd say there's probably two, two stories, one a personal story and one the professional story, the academic story. So the personal story is that, you know, having, you know, being a first-generation college student, coming from a family that was both uh, Polish and Puerto Rican, and, uh, and growing up in a, in a kind of working-class environment, I think that there were some issues for me in terms of my own identity that were important to uh, to me as I was growing up and then began to intersect with my academic interest. So um, when I kind of arrived in academia, and I was kind of a late arrival to mm-hmm. academia, I was uh, practicing uh, in architectural firms in New York prior to becoming an academic. Um, I found that the context of doing uh, service learning, community engagement, engaged scholarship was one of the best ways to kind of navigate my interest. And I think that in some ways I always uh, have thought of myself as a kind of a connector and a bridge builder. I think that's built into my identity of trying to even navigate my own whiteness and my Puerto Rican identity. Um, so as I began to, um, when I arrived at UMass in around 2001 and began to do work within the architecture department there, I became very involved in the, many of the same programs that Mari just mentioned, the Puerto Rican Studies Seminar, which was a, a five-college initiative to bring faculty and community partners together to talk about uh, Puerto Rican culture and history to um, deepen the work that we were doing in Holyoke at that time. And so that was a real uh, kind of eye-opening seminar for many of us, for both faculty on there as well as community partners. And it really, um, that was in 2003, 2004. And that really kind of set the work that I began to do at UMass after that. So um, from there, uh, becoming involved in the the community service learning program at UMass and, you know, John Reif, who was the longtime director of of the program, And, Good friend uh, of the compact. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, uh, and uh, having um, becoming a faculty fellow, you know, at UMass Amherst, we have one of the longest uh, running faculty fellows program, which is geared to training faculty to do service learning classes. And you know, we're in our twenty fourth year of yeah. that program now. So in two thousand seven, I became a faculty fellow. Um, and in, when I completed that in two thousand eight, I joined the Provost Committee on Service Learning, which is our advisory committee at UMass. That's mostly a faculty uh, who, who are teaching service learning classes, many previous fellows. And um, 
through that uh, time on that uh, uh, committee, became the chair of the committee. And uh, and then recently with John Rife's uh, retirement, I'm now the director of civic engagement and service learning for UMass Amherst. So that, so that pathway to doing this work uh, follows that, those lines. Mm-hmm. I wanted to add a little something yeah, that I think is also really important is that in this, in the early, I think, 2000s that um, the fellows program was ongoing through the CISO office, and then also the Puerto Rican Studies Faculty Community Seminar was happening. There, it brought together faculty that then we also applied for a COPSI grant mm-hmm. um, through, at the time, HUD. Um, that was a three-year, uh, $400,000 grant that allowed us to do a variety of different community partnerships based in education, uh, urban gardening, economic development, uh, for instance, housing. Um, and we were getting together pretty much on a weekly basis for a three-year span to work closely with community partners through our courses and through our research um, to really think about how can we partner closely with with folks that were engaging particularly in Holyoke um, with uh, residents and students and so forth as a way of trying to bring to bear the university and college resources to the community itself um, and also using this grant as an opportunity to build and and deepen those relationships. And that was, I think, very critical for developing the long-term relationship that we've had with folks over the years, not only with community partners, but also with faculty um, and really developing um, a particular approach that um, that is demonstrated by the the community compact um, that we have, the The campus community compact that is that is shared with um, faculty between partners in order to be very clear about what is this partnership going to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we uh, do this kind of partnership in a way that it can orient social justice and social justice not in this sort of fluffy kind of way, but as very specific and real material, yeah. um, and also recognizes that the community also has limited resources to, to be able to host tons of students. And so, really having those conversations that are important to make sure that we're also not overburdening community partners, um, and that it doesn't just become something where the students gain, you know, an experience, but then transformation doesn't really happen. And so really thinking about how do we do all those different pieces together was an important part of how over the years we've been trying to do this kind of work, particularly here in in Western Massachusetts and in Holyoke in particular. So uh, with that, there's uh, folks who join us for this uh, podcast from across the country. So if you can explain a little bit and give a background a little bit on Holyoke would be great. Yeah. Well, I don't want to add to that, and I'll, and I'll definitely talk about the, the Holyoke bit, is that one of the things I think that's maybe uh, unique, or maybe I just feel it's unique, is that the community partners that we engage with in Holyoke were very much a part of like setting the agenda for the work, both for the COPSI grant and I think for the work we've been doing in the five college area. So, you know, uh, Carlos Vega, who was a longtime community organizer, director of Nueva Esperanza in Holyoke, and Betty Medina Lichtenstein, who's the director of uh, Enlace de Familia in, in Holyoke, they were really important drivers to the conversation. So it really didn't, you know, and, and we talk about reciprocity. I think we saw it in action then, mm-hmm. because, you know, we had really strong and, and powerful leaders in, in Holyoke, Puerto Rican community, Latino community. And, uh, and to have such great partnerships, we, we always talk about partnerships in this kind of work. And, um, and and reciprocity. I think we, we saw some really great on the ground, you know, real material partnerships that were so important. To, I mean, very important to me in terms of developing, uh, you know, uh, kind of sensibility about how to do this work well. Mm-hmm. Holyoke, Holyoke, Massachusetts. So Holyoke is an amazing city. I think uh, about forty thousand people. It has about fifty uh, percent of the population is Puerto Rican. Pittsburgh is Latino primarily Puerto Rican, which is and it's a very unique place in that way. In the U.S., it's the highest uh, per capita percentage-wise of Puerto Ricans in a city. So, uh, and I think that's a unique characteristic of it. Um, the work that we've done is primarily centered around the four downtown wards of Holyoke, and that area is about 85% Puerto Rican, or 85% Latino, and then primarily Puerto Rican. So, it's an interesting city. We've done some work in Springfield as well, which is our, uh, one of our uh, major urban areas here. Also, with a high percentage, very high percentage of people of color population, because there you have African Americans, Latinos, and uh, Asian Americans making up about 50% of the population there as well. But it's a, Springfield has a slightly different dynamic because there's all those communities that are kind of uh, 
together within that city. And Holyoke is really interesting because it is, uh, and I always call Holyoke a Puerto Rican city, and mm-hmm. I think that there's a, a sense of, you know, the kind of bilingualism is a kind of key characteristic of it. Uh, but it's also a post-industrial city. So it has kind of um, been um, uh, affected by the, the economic downturns and white flight and the various things that historically um, industrial cities have gone through in the late uh, 20th century and into the 21st century. So, um, and but one of the things I think that really has uh, characterized it, and if, on one hand, if we look at the, the deficit understanding of it and seeing as the effects of poverty and, and uh, uh, economic disenfranchisement, on the other hand, we see the effects of a really strong community-based organization network and a really you know, powerful community organizing network that over the years has ebbed and flowed. So uh, I think uh, I, I think of my, my good friend and colleague, uh, uh, Maria Catana Salgado, who always uh, who is known as the kind of uh, um, the uh, historian, people's historian of the Puerto Rican diaspora, and she also she tells a story often about how the origin of activism and organized in Holyoke came from the fires that were being set in buildings in the seventies and eighties, mm-hmm. and how community members organized around that in order to. Uh, find ways uh, to to stop those arsons, but also it was the origins of the development of Nueva Esperanza, who then ended up developing 400 units of affordable housing within Holyoke. Mm-hmm. So uh, so those stories, right, are the ones that the kind of the invisible stories don't really get tell, told in Holyoke about organizing and community resiliency that has existed pretty much from the 70s. Right. Um, so I think you know, that's a whole is a very interesting space in that. But. Mm-hmm. And so sort of with that discussion of how you uh, both got involved in this work and the community that um, you all work in, can you tell us a little bit about the impetus for your book, Civic Engagement in Diverse Latinx Communities, Learning from Social Justice Partnership in Action? Um, how did this come about? What were some of the main lessons that you learned from bringing scholars together across the country who were working um, in these diverse Latinx communities, and what overall impact do you think it has on the broader field of civic and community engagement? That's a great question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, again, we've been working um, in uh, community and civic engagement partnerships for a long time, and having presented a lot of this kind of work um, at various different conferences over the years, both academic conferences, but also, you know, sort of community-based conferences. And one of the things that, that I started noticing was, um, a, you know, sort of emerging group of scholars that were doing this kind of work from different parts of the country. Um, and so coming together at various different events and gatherings, talking about what kind of work were they doing um, that was bringing together faculty, students, and uh, community partners into these conversations of reciprocity, social justice, um, particularly in this moment in time when we're feeling increasingly that Latinx communities are under attack, both in terms of what's happening post Maria hurricane, um, but then also just with regards to what's happening with immigration mm-hmm. and, um, and the fact that a lot of communities of color, but particularly Latinx communities, um, are feeling increasingly um, dismissed um, and be feeling um, excluded uh, and being demonized in so many ways about what is happening. And then oftentimes as well, and again, all, all these, these narratives are, are sort of media narratives that get produced about who we are and what our communities are are um, are made of and, and are contributing to our society. Because again, part of that narrative is also that we're not contributing very much at all. Mm-hmm. If anything, we're extracting or we're creating the violence and all kinds of stuff. And so in those conversations with folks, really recognizing that, in fact, there was a lot of assets that were uh, very present in a lot of these community spaces that a lot of my friends and colleagues were involved in, but also were taking um, were taking action and pushing back, not only in terms of the narratives, but reclaiming space and reclaiming um, sort of uh, their voices of how they can enter into, you know, public policy or even um, how, you know, certain um, discussions were happening in a community setting and so forth. Um, and and so the book, what the impetus was really trying to bring together this whole range of partnerships that were happening at different parts of the country um, 
And they were also largely scholars that were assistant professors or associate professors. So you, there's very few, if any, real senior scholars um, in terms of people that are uh, towards the more at the end of their career. It's more people that are that are really engaging uh, in starting out their careers now, um, but also wanting to recognize the the, the important thing of uh, knowledge formation that's happening through these partnerships itself, and really trying to argue and demonstrate that in fact new forms of understanding are emerging as a result of these partnerships. They're not just sort of these applied projects that are sort of um, that faculty are using and that has, you know, that does not reformulating the ways in which we think about um, not just partnerships, but Latinx communities in particular, um, and the ways in which students' learning is also being transformed as a result of this, which I think has a long history already in community-based partnerships for a long time. Um, so that's not necessarily the new the, the new sort of space of it. But I think for me, the, the thing that was really critical was that a lot of these partnerships, the community itself was taking the lead in trying to set the agenda and trying to work together with the faculty and the students in terms of we're already doing a lot of this work. It just hasn't been documented mm -hmm. or recognized. Um, and so this became an opportunity to really do that um, and to also challenge how this work actually takes place. Because a couple of the chapters also talk about that, in fact, students and community partners sort of push back about, well, what is civic engagement and what is community partnerships and what does that actually look like and, and who benefits from them and who doesn't um, and what is the kind of language and the frameworks that we use um, to discuss that and, and what is um, the, the fact that it's also oftentimes English dominant and so here in the books there's a couple that are using either Spanish language or indigenous sort of frameworks for thinking about how community organizations and community uh, work is actually trying to utilize that um, those assets of you know different frameworks that are not Eurocentric that are not Western that are not based in the United States but in fact have very much influenced the way that the United States is sort of operating today in terms of these communities mm -hmm. and reshaping what is the future of the U.S. looking like. Um, and so I would say that would, that's the impetus of the book. The other piece of it, too, um, is that when we are in the process of bringing these chapters together and um, and thinking about the book as a whole and, again, how it can make an intervention, we also did, of course, a big literature review and looking at the fact that there really wasn't a book like this at all right. in any of the civic engagement, community service learning uh, work. And the other thing that was really key is that all the professors and authors are all that identified as Latinx. Mm -hmm. So when we were looking at all the literature, I noticed that there were definitely a lot of, there was a lot of discussion about Latino communities, oftentimes a very, very deficit thinking approach. Um, it was not folks that were coming from those communities themselves. Um, and the other piece of it was that it also oftentimes felt very much, um, you know, let's help estos pobrecitos, you know, like these poor people. Um, and and not, not necessarily that they didn't recognize the assets that they had, but there, there definitely seems to be, a, there, there seemed to be an orientation that was about um, helping doing these projects and moving on. And here we have folks that are engaged for the long haul. I mean, our folks that are coming from those communities oftentimes, but also very much connected in one way or another. They may have not grown up saying, Mm -hmm. um, but they grew up in a community very similar to it, for instance, or are coming from a Latinx background. Um, and so that was one of the pieces that we thought was, for me, was and for us, was very critical and really key because we also wanted to make an intervention that Latinx faculty are making interventions, right. are producing those forms of knowledge, are utilizing also the history and the theorization that's happening in Latino studies, Puerto Rican studies, Chicano studies to inform their work, but that also they are also making contributions in their areas of study as well, because not everyone's necessarily coming from Latino studies. People are coming from comparative literature, architecture, communication, sociology, but they're engaging with these broader conversations and fields. And, and again, through those partnerships are developing new forms of theorization of, that are helping us understand what's happening in, in these communities. Mm -hmm. And again, that, you know, you can't cut and paste and say, okay, I'm going to read this chapter and I'm going to utilize that same project over here, but that it can provide like a model that folks could potentially think about how, what would that look like in this context that I'm in, you know, and what are the, the issues that they had to grapple with and what are the opportunities that it provides that perhaps folks can have these conversations about 
also um, thinking about how it can be utilized. And, and I think for me, that was also part of the, um, the impetus because I wrote this piece in Latino studies that I mentioned mm-hmm. where I kind of outlined and I uh, saw that a lot of people were asking as well, do you know the other things that are happening? Is, is, there, is there another article somewhere? Do you know a book or a book chapter? So that was the other piece that I started re- noticing that people were asking me, you know, what, what else is there? What else is there? Yeah. You know, and, and I knew of partnerships that were happening and amazing work that was taking place. So then when we approached our friends and colleagues and said, and our compañeros, um, hey, like, have you written about that? Have you done? And most of them, actually, some of them said, I hadn't even thought about that. Like, I hadn't thought about writing about it. I wasn't sure. And, and some people said, I wanted to write about it, but I wasn't sure who would publish it or where I would, you know, sort of have it included. And so it became a wonderful opportunity for them to also reflect back on all the work that they've been doing. Um, and a lot of them, I would say that they were just really happy to be able to have that opportunity. And the thing that, again, was important for us was that it wasn't just, this is what I did, then I did X, then I did Y, this is the recipe. Like I said, you know, we want to hear a little bit about that, but we also want to hear about what is the transformation that's taking place? What are the ways in which you're being transformed? Mm-hmm. And so testimonio was an important part of that narrative, but also how are your students being transformed and the community partners and what are the things that you're hearing? And um, and so some of those questions were sometimes questions that I hadn't really thought about, but this became an opportunity to bring that together. Um, and, and the thing about um, the publisher is that uh, originally, you know, I didn't necessarily have one particular publisher. So we did the book first before we had published <laughs> sure. so that's the other piece it's gonna get printed somehow exactly <laughs> I was I was I was convinced that it would definitely be published um and I did go to a couple more traditional academic like university press yeah. And some of them actually responded like, oh, we did something similar on Hurricane Katrina, you know, 10 years ago. We're good. Like, so because they had done or, something. Or asking us to actually make it uh, not so focused on Latinx communities. So that really? was the other feedback. Okay. Exactly. Feedback. That they said, um, actually, you know, it's too it's too narrow. Even though we're like, but no, it's very diverse because there's diversity within these communities. But they were not recognizing that and saying, well, you know, maybe, but we would really like you to focus on other on a whole broader people. And and we were very committed that, no, this is this book really had to have to have that focus because there wasn't anything like that at all Mm -hmm. that was currently available. Uh, and there was a real desire, not just from Latinx students or faculty, but faculty from a whole you know, range of racial, ethnic backgrounds that were working with communities of color um, and, and also with Latinx communities that wanted to hear about what was going on and happening. I think one of the things that, that's interesting about the book, that even though it focused on Latinx communities, that the models of civic engagement that it uh, offers is, are, is very diverse. So. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I, I think the way we saw civic engagement is in many different ways. I mean, there are examples within the book that are service science classes, dealing with students, there are kind of research, engage research projects. Uh, there are hybrids between all of those. There's there's questions about um, a faculty member's own involvement in a community organization as a, as a member or, uh, or as a board member or as more or as a participating member. So I think that that's one of the reasons why we, we titled it Civic Engagement, because it also represents how civic engagement happens in all sorts of different ways, both as learners, as professors, as, as participants in the own community. That was a unique part of it. I think all of those lessons are applicable to many, many different kinds of communities and communities of color and just folks in general, academics in general, that are doing civic engagement and service learning work. So I do think that, you know, we, we did think that it had a very broad audience. But it was interesting that some of the responses that we got from the publishers was like it was too narrow. Mm. I think that says more about right. the context that we're working in than, right, than yeah. what we were trying to do. Exactly. Yeah. When I first learned about the book, I was really excited because my work has focused a lot on um, Latino communities, uh, Puerto Rican communities, and really not seeing ourselves represented in the literature and thinking about where do we, because we know these projects are happening. We know all of these universities across the country are sending students to um, our communities, but where is this being captured? Where are our uh, faculty of color, right? And their work being captured um, that is important to that transformation of students. I know my own personal story, it was through uh, a Puerto Rican studies course that got me connected to to my community that put me on the trajectory for, for this kind of work that I do now professionally. Um, and what kept me in college, right? And I think for a lot of our students, this is also about access, retention, transformation. 
and also for the faculty. So for a lot of us that are coming as first generation professors, um, you know, in low income communities, in some cases, um, you know, there there's got to be a bigger sort of a bigger impetus of why we're doing the work that we're doing, because we're also in many ways not necessarily going back to the communities that we grew up in. I mean, in some cases we're able to, and that's wonderful. But in my case, coming from Los Angeles, now living in Western Mass, it's very different. But in terms of the work that I do, I want to be very much connected to community because that's then gives the purpose of what I'm doing here. Otherwise, it feels like what is the point? Right. You know, what what is it? Because simply about producing articles only that are um, not addressing questions of social justice and power, um, that, that's not gonna be motivating enough. And, and I feel like there's too much at stake to be able to just sort of sit back in my own case. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of us feel that way too. Um, so that becomes a really excellent space that then can inspire other students that are working with us. And there definitely are lots of stories where students have continued on in that trajectory in one form or another um, that I think is, is really critical and key for transforming the future of the United States. Because what we're talking about with the, I think, um, this particular political moment and the ways in which particularly communities of color um, are in many ways, um, you know, always seen as problems and so on and so forth. It's also about the future of the, the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, and its culture and the reality that it is going to change. And so how do we how do we become part of those conversations and also um, help make those kinds of interventions and social change that is gonna be very important for us to continue to be equal participants in that particular future right. as well. So you, just, you all just had a symposium uh, this past Friday at UMass Amherst around the topic of the book. Can you tell us a little bit about um, that, how it went, the participation, uh, what folks who, who went uh, gained from, from the symposium? Well, first of all, it was awesome. Yay. <laughs> it was amazing, amazing, amazing. But I'll let Joe talk a little bit yeah, about we have it. Yeah, it, it was actually a fabulous day. And I think in one of the things that, um, uh, in putting together the symposium, one of the things that we did was the, the book itself has a national focus. The, mm-hmm. the, the scholar activists that are uh, contributing to it are from all over the U.S., but we, we both, Marty and I both recognize that, you know, one of the primary sources and inspirations for the book was the work that we've been doing that we just talked yeah. about. And uh, so we wanted to bring it back home in, in many ways, in many sense. And say, so if we were going to do something at UMass Amherst, that we knew it had to include the communities uh, in Hollywood and Springfield, the Latinx communities that we've been working with for many years. So um, so that was one parameter that we said for ourselves, okay, let's, you know, uh, what can we do to highlight, to make visible, uh, you know, the things that are going on here in the community that were really the origin for the book. So we actually uh, did a lot of uh, work reaching out to community partners that we knew who were working with academics. But this was a very, uh, I think in some ways, a unique uh, symposium in that uh, an academic and community partner presented together. So there were no singular academic uh, presented and no singular community partner. Presented. They presented together about their partnership. Mm. And because, you know, we're talking about how this, these uh, community university uh, partnerships develop and, uh, and, and what new models can develop, um, we thought that was really important to make it much more dialogic. So, uh, so we did that. But we also prioritize the community partner, because we asked the community partner, who are you working with? So it wasn't, you know, of course we did, there were some academics and, and friends that we know, that we knew of their partnerships and we invited them. But in many cases, say, okay, who it would be best to present with you because they've been supporting your work, they've been, you know, through their own research, through their own service learning classes, uh, through any hybrid of that. And that was another way that we began to kind of craft it and cultivate it. And then um, we had started originally with, uh, with sort of the way that the book was organized in, in terms of uh, uh, panels. But I think ultimately we had one panel that was on uh, education and building partnerships through education. A second panel that was on the politics of place, really focused on uh, some issues in Holyoke that involve uh, kind of uh, development, gentrification, issues of, of belonging. And then the third panel was, uh, you know, because we, we, we knew that the... Um, the symposium was one day after the one-year anniversary of Maria's landfall, mm-hmm. in Maria's landfall in Puerto Rico. We wanted to make sure that we did have a panel on uh, Maria and the uh, effects on Western Massachusetts, because uh, this Western uh, Massachusetts in general is the second highest uh, number of uh, migrant refugees from Puerto Rico who have come, uh, you know, post Maria. So we were looking at some of the many impacts of that. 
Yeah, and I think that one of the important things that also was um, key in terms of the symposium and was also that it was meant to be a day of dialogue mm. so that even though we had uh, people presenting for about 20 minutes, um, overall it was about a 40-minute sort of set of presentations, um, we were bringing then the panelists into the tables that we had organized and then had ses- had time for all the participants to actually engage not just with the panelists, but with each other. And because so many of the folks are either interested or already working in some kind of form or another in partnerships. Um, and some folks are not necessarily even working with Latinx communities per se, but are working in questions of civic engagement, service learning, social justice, um, and trying to think about what are the models that are here and how could these models potentially you know, be, uh, you know, sort of utilized in these other contexts, of course, taking local context into account. Um, But in terms of the actual panels, even the first one, we had discussion of um, the inclusion of ethnic studies program in, um, in Holyoke High School and the ways in which, which already there's different examples of that particularly in the Midwest, uh, in the, you know, in the Southwest and on the West Coast, um, whereas on the East Coast is something that's starting to emerge and really thinking about, you know, a, a criticality of critical race theory and, and the questioning of white supremacy that is happening now in high schools through this, this theoretical and historical study. Mm-hmm. And so we brought, um, you know, the community partners and educators along with the faculty that are helping to create that at the high school level. And again, the trans- that just the discussion of the transformation that's happening with high school students, because it's not just about their sort of participation at the high school, but how they see themselves as political and social agents of change that then also want to go on to college and want to go on to sort of thinking about how do I use these assets, this intellectual work that I'm doing in these other places in the future as well, and seeing themselves as leaders in their community. Um, And then the other one was actually a parent literacy program for for folks that were largely from Guatemala that are undocumented working in the area so that it was actually Head Start, but it was a Head Start program directed at parents and and um, and developing literacy skills with the parents. And so they were working, that organization was working closely with a professor at Holyoke Community College uh, and how that partnership has led to, again, their own transfer, uh, transformation of the participants that were, you know, feeling like they would never get to read and write in Spanish because we're starting with Spanish and right. then moving on to English. And the, the mothers in particular feeling very empowered and being able to reclaim um, space and voice and, uh, and a sense of place and belonging. Uh, so that was one example of the first panel. And then it just continued to just get better and better as the, as the day wore on. Uh, and we did actually get a lot of positive feedback about um this was a positive feedback of the event, but also this was the first time that we had ever organized anything like this in the five colleges or in the region. So there had been uh, symposiums on Latin America, um, but really focusing on, on Latin America itself or even focusing on the Caribbean. There's been uh, sessions that were focused that were more um, sort of like academic focused. And so it was like the faculty members presenting their findings and research of these partnerships and so forth, if that's how they were doing it, but not necessarily bringing the community into those conversations and really seeing them as equal partners, because that was the key that was really important as they, they were standing in front of everyone. They're they're the ones that were taking the lead in that presentation. Yeah, um, and when they were presenting, you could, uh, in most cases, the community partner presented first and then the faculty presented about what they were doing in order to kind of support and elaborate on the agenda that was set by the community partner. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. So that, that also that really shifted the energy in the room. I mean, it just was a very different orientation. And I think one of the key things that Joe did mention that I thought was really wonderful that everyone picked up on and was, I think, really sort of became a, a big theme was not only like a critical reflection, you know, of how we're doing this work and how can we do it better and deeper and um, and more inclusive, you know, ways, um, but also that that love was an important key piece of why we were doing what we were doing and how we were doing it so that folks, um, you know, are, you know, love their students and love their community partners. Even love doesn't necessarily mean that there's no challenges because right. it's not always rainbow and roses, you know, <laughs> you know, that. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> you know, love has all these different dimensions to it, but that, um, but that really, um, when Joe was talking about it, I can't remember exactly how you well, no, but I think, it. I mean, I mean, love, I mean, like really think about love as a critical practice right. because if we, if, uh, I mean, one of the kind of conversations we've been having in the Cecil office at UMass is what does criticality mean to us as an office? So doing civic engagement, service learning, and, and we definitely you know, believe in having a kind of critical service learning framework. 
but what does that include? What does it not include? And, you know, we we see sort of alternative practices that we talk a lot about contemplative practices mm-hmm. and, uh, in, in the office and, and how uh, this uh, kind of love as a critical practice, which is, does it mean, I think often sometimes if we talk about love or emotion in the work that we're doing, then uh, there's a sense that there's no rigor to our practices as scholars. Right? And then, and for, uh, for you know, one way that we try to frame this and think about it, and it's a challenge too, is that how do you mean not have that happen, not, not kind of have these things become binaries, but that you really are kind of creating a practice that bridges, you know, the kind of the uh, emotional and uh, kind of loving aspect of what we do with the kind of critical practices and critical understanding and the need, the need for that critique, the need to kind of you know, use a critical race theory framework to understand whiteness and white supremacy as you know with, within a, a sensibility that, that uh, recognizes how destructive it has been you mm-hmm. know for our communities and 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 for the country as a whole so i think it's like you know how do we balance those things and i, I think the the context of doing this kind of civic engagement service learning work within communities allows us the context to do that but if we're working totally within the academic scholarly context it's harder to build those bridges but because we're kind of on the ground we kind of get the, the almost the necessary pushback, but it, the pushback is also the grounding that allows right. us to kind of then, uh, you know, move forward in these kind of conversations in ways that actually that that community practices have really pointed to, you know, for decades and mm-hmm. centuries, right? So if we think about indigenous practices, or we think about practices that have happened in in uh, you know, underrepresented communities over the years that have you know demonstrated their resiliency time and time again by uh, getting things done in the face of enormous challenges, right? right? So, you know, to, to quote Hamilton, you know, you know, immigrants, we get the job done. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah, and I think that that was the, the key thing overall was just like that, what is this, you know, Latinx community academic praxis um, that we talk about in the book that we wanted to emphasize in the symposium that is complex, that's multi-layered, um, that brings in cultura as part of that conversation and engagement that is not you know, again, a a Eurocentric Western model of how we're doing this, but that in fact really brings into the fold um, these um, historical ways of being that oftentimes are always happening, but always not necessarily always acknowledged. Um, And so that, um, you know, we we call it like, I was working with some friends of mine who also contributed to the book and we're talking about it as a form of academic tamaleando, you know, (laughs) where we're like all coming together and we're discussing and we're, you know, we're making tamales like in the it's in the sense of academic tamales, right? Yeah. But we're we're all contributing and we're all participating, but we're also breaking bread together, right. and we're also enjoying each other's company. Uh, but we're also coming, you know, we're also discussing, you know, serious issues and trying to figure out how to how to do it in a way that again um, is rigorous and that really gets trying to get at the heart of the matter, um, but at the same time is understanding that we're also you know humans in community and that we want to be able to support each other in that process. Mm-hmm. And so that's partly what we were trying to do through the book, trying to do through the symposium. Um, and, and of course, people were asking us, when are you doing this again? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what kind of yeah. thing, uh, which we, of course, have to sort of talk about. But, um, but that was hopefully the, the sort of feel and the energy that we wanted to bring to bear. Uh, but ultimately as well, again, as I mentioned earlier, that um, we are, there is knowledge production that is taking place. Um, that is important, that is critical, that is providing different models and interventions um, that we want to recognize and note as being just as worthy of the other kinds of work that's happening at a university college setting mm-hmm. um, that oftentimes, you know, community-based works and sometimes get dismissed. And we are pushing back and arguing and saying, no, actually, you need to recognize because this is what's going on. Yeah. Um, and, and really trying to do that. And so far, we've gotten support from our university. So actually, the symposium was funded by the Center for Latin American, Caribbean, and Latino Studies, uh, which provided the funding, which we were so grateful for. Um, And then also our own departments, Department of Communication, and also the Civic Engagement Service Learning Office also provided, um, you know, in-kind support to be able to have this kind of symposium. But it it also, you know, reminded us that we don't need tons of resources to be able to put people together, to bring people together. And I think that people are really hungry for these kinds of spaces to be able to have these critical, important conversations uh, and, and, and really try to figure out how can we continue doing this work in a way that, um, that really has at the center social justice, love, 
history, you know, culture as a way of, of working together, you know, in the future. So one of the uh, implications uh, of the um, symposium that I think is interesting to, to talk about is uh, both implications for faculty and implications for community partners. So for faculty, and I think it did come up in the seminar, um, you know, through some of the questions and some of the table dialogue, is that what are we really doing to support uh, um, promotion, tenure and promotion for folks who are doing engaged scholarship and working very directly with community partners? So, um, so that's definitely one of the things that we want to continue to explore, whether it happens within the kind of context uh, of another symposium, or just what is it that we need to do on our campuses to get our administrations aligned with that. And I think the second component that's really important is how to really, how do communities really participate in the university? How, you know, how do they contribute to the university and what kind of relationships uh, can we establish? I know that with the new Carnegie classifications, I think there's some really interesting and uh, more thoughtful ways of thinking about community contributions to university governance, university uh, assessments. So primarily we look at it from a point of view of assessments, like what are we doing in a community sense that, you know, we're doing this well or we're not doing this well. Um, and I think we often talk about how is it possible for community to begin to uh, direct some of our research agenda. Whether that really happens in, right. on the ground is something that's kind of, it, it, it's complicated. But I think it's also about building a reciprocal relationship because it's not about the community solely directing our research agendas, but it's also not about the faculty solely research, uh, uh, setting up the research agenda as well. So if we really truly are building a kind of reciprocal partnership with our community partners, then we should have mechanisms that make that more natural and make the kind of back and forth kind of set agendas and to understand what the community needs are very explicitly and to find the right intersections. Because I think that's interesting. You know, one of the things that I'm looking at um, on campus at UMass is how the uh, how community partners inter, um, uh, communicate with the university. Like how do they identify what needs they might have and then how we as university might understand how to best meet those needs. Because in some cases, it uh, might be something that's focused on volunteerism and, you know, a community organization needs a lot of folks to do something. So that might happen through student affairs. In other cases, they have a, a research question that they need to be examined. And we can really go to our research and engagement office and find ways to find the right researcher to do that. In, in some cases, can we kind of uh, design a service learning class around a particular question and then engage with students in it? So the mechanism to do it now are a little bit ad hoc. And I mm -hmm. think, you know, uh, I'd like to kind of find ways, at least at UMass, to do that in a more kind of consistent way. So I think those are some of the implications that are, that have come out of the of the symposium that are interesting to kind of continue to explore. Right, the work is not done; it's just a continuation of what um, this book and the symposium has been able to to create and generate in terms of ideas moving moving forward and how people take that into you know shifting practices within their institutions. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. And congratulations on the book, on the symposium. And we look forward to having you again on a future uh, Compact Nation podcast. Thank Thanks. you, Marisol. Thank you, Marisol. All right. Now that we're back, um, I've been familiar with the work uh, that's been taking place or that the book speaks to uh, and the interview speaks to. But, you know, I'd be interested in hearing from both you, uh, Emily and Andrew. What are your thoughts on on the interview and what uh, Madi and Joseph shared with us about why they did this work, uh, the impact that that it has and um, also the influence that it can have in the field? I it was a great interview and I really am looking forward to reading the book now um having heard that and haven't had a chance to do that yet but a lot of things really stood out to me I think that one of the big things I like about the work we do in this field is that we're trying to just conceive of higher education and education differently how it can work and who can be an educator and what it means to learn and things like that and I think in that regard we have a lot to learn from other cultures so I appreciated so much um, just the things they were bringing to the table around um, being community driven and really 
equal with community partners and recognizing how much there is to learn there and bringing different fields together. And there were lots of things um, that they talked about that I think are good practice across the board. So it's it's just clear how much you can learn if you look at how um, just people do things in different places and in different cultures and what you can take away from that. I loved when they talked about love as critical practice. And I think just getting past this idea that you have to be, you know, tough in order to be rigorous um, and, and things like that, that don't really square with, I think, how a lot of faculty want to live their lives, how a lot of students best learn, things like that. So that, that was a big one that stood out to me that I will definitely be using. Uh, well, I was reflecting on the place where they have been doing their work, Holyoke, Massachusetts, which um, is a lot like a lot of other places in New England and other parts of the country. It was a thriving uh, mill community, uh, which has, when you go there now, an unbelievable empty industrial infrastructure, beautiful old mill buildings that are just empty and uh, you know no productive activity happening there. And as in many such communities, this is one of the things I was thinking about. During the period when it was producing enormous wealth, the benefits of that wealth went almost exclusively to white people. And in fact, in as in, and I had this a very similar experience working in Camden and living in Trenton, New Jersey, the, the timing and some of it was coincidence and some of it, of course, was not, uh, is that kind of as these cities became places that were predominantly African-American and Latino, uh, then for various reasons, the wealth disappeared. But uh, those communities were left kind of holding the bag, but they never had benefited to any great extent. Again, some of that was due directly to discrimination. Some of it was due to just other kinds of trends of globalization and whatever. And so you end up with communities that have these kind of um, physical hallmarks of the the once great wealth they had, people who did not share in that wealth now dealing with the aftershocks. And so the, the question of like institutions that are themselves many in many cases built on that wealth becoming partners and the sort of the duration and the commitment that it takes to build the kind of trust that can create meaningful opportunity. And again, it, Holyoke is one place that I think is emblematic of this, but it happens in others. And I just, I felt like the, I sensed in the way just Mari and Joseph talked about this work, a, a deep understanding of the complexities that they were working in. And so I have not yet read this book, but I'm interested to, to learn more from uh, other authors engaging with you know, these kinds of challenges. It was, it was for me, very reminiscent of work that I had done myself, but I also felt like they were clearly bringing um, insights to the table that I thought we could all learn from. Yeah, definitely. And, I, you know, I think also the openness these communities have had um, also like in response to Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico and the influx of uh, folks from Puerto Rico moving to, to the area afterwards. And, that even though they're left holding the bag, there's still this openness to being, you know, um, an inclusive community or um, or creating a, a sense of belonging and responding to, to those um, issues and the responsibility that our institutions in the area have, right? But if it's not for um, folks at our institutions who really understand this work and understand it deeply, and I think to some extent understand it culturally, you know, are those spaces created? And so I appreciate both the way that they framed the book in terms of um, the diverse Latinx communities and bringing scholars from across the country and linking it to um, social justice and civic engagement. I think that that's a strong underpinning, especially in ethnic studies and the development of ethnic studies, um, civic engagement, you know, talking to some of the early founders was community engagement was part of the, the founding of those uh, fields, but we often don't, don't link them. Um, and the other piece is that the young scholars that they, um, you know, Latinx scholars that they brought forth through this work, um, 
you know, most of whom we might not know currently in, in the field uh, and we haven't tapped into because they may be publishing in their discipline or more connected to their discipline. But how do we as a field become more welcoming, more inclusive, create a sense of belonging to this work because these folks are already doing it. And I think a book like this um, and hopefully more that will come out from diverse scholars helps to to make our field more inclusive and, and welcoming. Yeah, I mean, I was struck by the some of what they talked about relative to scholarship, too. And some of it is that it aligns with just a lot of other things I've been hearing lately in conversations I've been in around. I think it was Mari who said specifically, like, she wanted to do more than articles. Like, it, it was important to, to her for her scholarly work to have meaning, to be meaningful to her. And I think we see in a lot of ways where the promotion and tenure process really does not promote that. In a conference I was at recently, a, um, a faculty member described the promotion and tenure process as asking him to separate from his soul, to, to take all of the personal meaning out of his work, to focus on just the production of articles. And again, that's, I think that's an area where we can push the field. Again, not that publishing articles isn't important. Of course it is. We have, I think you have more and more scholars who want this deeper meaning and that can be a part of it and that can be recognized and that doesn't have to be stripped away from everything in order to have, you know, rigor and quality research. Right. And then also like the kind of community that you can build among scholars who are doing this so that research and, and publishing uh, is not a, um, a solitary act, but something right. that is done in, in community. And the more that we can create those spaces, either through edited volumes or opportunities to, to, to work together on research projects, I think is is important. I also I, so when I first saw the word diverse in the title, like I, I literally wasn't sure what it was signaling because it seemed like it could mean a couple of different things. But I, you know, I think the point that Latinx communities are are quite different from each other for all kinds of reasons. Right. For the the, the places where people are coming from, uh, for the, the, the context in the U.S. where they're situated, region urban and rural. like And so I think even that aspect of uh, understanding that within categories that we sort of toss around, uh, that there is tremendous diversity and that we learn about that by engaging with it directly, sometimes by hearing from others who have done so, but also ourselves, uh, that, that just seemed like a useful reminder as I came to understand the way they were positioning that, that term. Yeah, right. I mean, the the Latino Latinx community is very diverse in and of itself, not only in terms of countries that we come from, but also uh, racially and uh, economically. And so that there is no sort of monolithic to, to that. And oftentimes, as scholars are finding their place at different institutions, they may be working in communities that are Latinx, but they're not the communities that they are identified with ethnically, right? Uh uh, Mari is uh, Chicana, grew up in uh, Southern California and is working in Western Massachusetts in a predominantly uh, Puerto Rican, you know, uh, Caribbean community. And so what are the dynamics of how that enters? And then some of the other scholars or vice versa, uh, Puerto Ricans working in uh, California and um, working with, uh, you know, Salvadoran and Mexican communities, immigrant communities, those sorts of things. So even that dynamic you know, plays its part in, in how this engagement takes place. Yeah. And I think that diversity is really important to, to recognize, um, and, and not to make assumptions. One of the projects I just recently worked on as part of the engaged faculty Institute was a professor who's teaching a Spanish for heritage speakers class. So they're build they built a um, Spanish language class at this college specifically for people who, cause they have a lot of these students, you know, grew up with Spanish in the household, but never really learned to write and read it necessarily, you know, just have had sort of that familial, familial learning and so have different needs than traditional, you know, English only people learning Spanish. And then they were going to take that class and work with um, parents trying to navigate college applications from a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. And so it was just lots of different interesting things, people coming from very different backgrounds with different skills, maybe coming from that community, maybe not coming from that community at all. 
so just a lot of different, I think, possibilities that come up in that circumstance, but also uh, the need to not make assumptions about where anybody might be coming from or what they may or may not have in common with those they're, they're going to be encountering. Absolutely. Well, Emily and Andrew, thanks for uh, this dialogue around the uh, interview and, and the book. What I want to tell our Compact Nation is uh, elections are coming up. Make sure to go out and vote. We want you. Go do it. Yes. Vote. Look for your registration deadlines. Look how you can vote absentee. Check out all your options. Early voting. Yes. Or move to Oregon where you're automatically registered. Oh, gosh. I'm doing early voting because I'll be traveling, so. I already voted. Awesome. So I want to remind our listeners to rate us and review us. Send us your thoughts, ideas, any suggestions for future podcasts. And then um, remember, if you want to share stuff with us, uh, hashtag CompactNationPod. That's correct. <laughs> with several question marks on it. Hashtag Marisol loves hashtags. I don't. I really don't. <laughs> Which letters do you capitalize? Which ones don't you? Does it go to the same spot? Who reviews them? I don't know. For the record, I don't think capitalization matters. Oh, that's good. <laughs> well, bye bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> bye now. <laughs> All right, folks. Thank you. Nation podcast is produced by Molly Leeper, Communications Manager for Campus Compact. Campus Compact is based in Boston, Massachusetts, and has over a thousand member colleges and universities across the country and beyond. If you want to learn more about Campus Compact, visit us at compact.org. You can send your comments, questions, and show ideas to podcast at compact.org or find us on social media with hashtag CompactNationPod. Or find us on social media with hashtag CompactNationPod. You can find our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and tell your friends.